welcome. Here at The Bridge Church, we exist to help you connect to God, grow with family, and serve our city. We hope today's message will allow you to grow deeper in your connection to God. Enjoy the message. Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this moment, that you would even give us songs that would declare that you would look down on us and speak to us, God. That this is an expectation that we can have of you. That the creator of heaven and earth speaks to his creation. That you have given us a revealed word in the word of God. And yet still, even if that wasn't enough, through your spirit, you speak and you use frail, flawed people to speak through. And so God, we've come here not only to sing songs, asking you to speak, but we've come with a heart to change. We've come with a heart to be different than when we were when we came in here. And yet, so God, we pray that during this time we would have a heart to, to, to learn and ears to hear and a desire to change, a burden to grow. And so God, today, we ask you to change us and grow us and make us look more like you. Thank you for being in this place, God. Now, God, I ask that personal request that my words would be carried by the Holy Spirit and that I would not be persuaded by men or influenced by men, but I would be transformed and I'd be transfixed on the presence of God and that the Spirit of God would control my mind and my heart and that people would hear you and they would hear about the world they live in and they would hear about the circumstance of their life and it would be as if you were speaking to them, God. And so God, we come to this place to hear you and not men. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray, amen? Amen. amen. You can have a seat. Well, it's good to be here today and, and good to be able to be going through this series that we're in. And we are in a series on justice. And last week we talked a little bit about how we do not have to depend on the government to enact justice in this world. In fact, what we said essentially was that we really don't need Christians to be partisan and to be classified by one party. There is no party, there is no political group, there is really no social organization that could in any way capture what God wants to do on earth. What God has done, he has instituted a group of people to put his thoughts and his life on display. And that is through the church. And the church is a group of people that have been ruled by God to then display his rule in the earth, his comprehensive rule. So if the believer is in a school, then that school has God's presence there and that school should be changed. And if the believer is in a city, then that city should be changed because God's presence is through them. And so the believer is a sojourner, an alien, going through this world, a part of another nation. And that is the kingdom of God. 
And he lives out the dynamics of that kingdom wherever they are. And so the church is very much like an assembly, embassy rather, an embassy where you would be in another nation but live out the reality of your nation, your people, and your God. And we are that embassy. We are those people. And we are the church. And so... November 9th, nothing changes. November 9th, nothing for us will be different. Certainly the government will be different and things will change, but we do not have to change and we don't need to be dependent. And so that's why we wanted to focus on justice in this moment because we realize that there is a tendency to get transfixed on the political environment and get worried or overly concerned that the government will fulfill God's plan. Uh, This week, what I want to do is I do want to talk a little bit about um, what justice is, the definition of it, and then next week we'll talk about racial injustice and how it affects our society today. But justice is unfortunately something that my wife and I, we were talking last night, and I've been involved in ministry since 1998. Before that, I'm a preacher's kid, and so I've been in church my whole life. And we sat there, and we're both church kids, and we thought to ourselves, name the sermon that you heard about justice. And I I sat back, and I thought to myself, I don't know if I have ever heard a pastor preach on justice. I've definitely heard them preach on money. I've definitely heard them preach on like something inspirational. But I, and I've definitely heard about evangelism, how we need to change the world through the message. But I have not heard a message in my lifetime about how there are social constructs that are oppressing people and the church is intended to be a part of unraveling those constructs of oppression. I never heard a sermon about that. And if I am a pastor who has been to three seminaries, has never heard that, what have you heard? And if that is not the case, if a pastor is not getting equipped to tell this story, then maybe the church will never fully understand God's perspective on justice. I believe we are living in a different day. I believe we are living in a time where justice is very much on the forefront of our politics. It is on the forefront of our news feeds. It is on the forefront of our minds. And it should be at the forefront of the church. The church should be one of the first people to speak on this issue. And so in light of that, I want to kind of unpack what justice is from a biblical perspective today. Um, interestingly enough, you think about how you grow close to God. Um, you probably read your Bible. You probably have thought to pray. You definitely have heard that you should fellowship with the saints. You might sing some songs of worship. Um, but sometimes in the midst of all that, you've even thought to fast. I wonder if anybody has ever fasted before and said, man, I want really to have a closer more intimate relationship with the Lord. So I will fast and push away my food or some of you might push away social media, but you will resist something 
by spiritual discipline so you can have more of God. I have fasted many times before. Uh, I've done a 40-day fast before. Rasul can tell you about it. He'll tell you some jokes about that time in my life too. But uh, I've done a 40-day fast twice, not to brag or to boast, but only to illustrate that when you do a 40-day fast, and I did not have food, I only had drinks. And during that time, you know, it's kind of this crazy moment where, you know, you go out to eat with your friends and the waiter comes and you're like, no, I'll just have water. Or do you have some orange juice? Or could you mix the orange juice with like some strawberry? Because I'm hungry, you know, so I just want all types of juice, V8. You know, you're constantly doing this all day. You get tired more. And you're doing all of this so you can grow close to God. And so fasting is this very disciplined like moment where you are saying, God, I want to hear from you. And I want you to hear from me. And there was a group of people the Bible talks about in Isaiah that thought to themselves, we want to grow closer to God. We want to get to this place of intimacy with God. So what we're going to do is we're going to push away our food so that we can get more of him. And yet in their fasting, God gives them a very definitive picture of what justice is. If you have a Bible, turn to Isaiah 58. If you don't, it's fine. We'll have it up on the screen. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah the prophet has had challenges in speaking to these people. One of the great challenges he has is that the people are so devoted. They're so loving in terms of their love for God. They're praying. They're reading their word. They're, they're seeking God. They're singing. And yet there's something missing in their devotion. And God is going to push Isaiah to not get caught up in what he sees on the outside, the devotion that they have because he believes that there's something missing. Isaiah 50, uh, 58, verse one, the Lord is saying to Isaiah, cry aloud, don't hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob, which is another word for Israel, the house of Jacob, their sins. Then in verse two, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways. And look at the miniature shade the Lord throws, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgments of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. And this is actually verse three. We don't have it up there where it says, why? Why? This is the people. He say, he, God is actually saying what the people are saying to him. Why have we fasted? And you see it not. Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Why? Why are we fasting? And God, you don't, you don't notice it. These people are devoted. Do you understand, before I unpack some of the details here, let me be clear, this isn't someone straggling. This isn't someone struggling. This isn't someone that is unknown in the temple. These are the people first in line. These are the spiritual warriors. 
These are the people that are most known because of their faith. He's not talking to the quote-unquote immature. He's talking to the mature people that everyone's looking to. (laughs) And so they're crying out to God. And notice the element, they seek me daily. This is not just a momentary thing for them. And they are asking, why have we fasted? When you get to the place, when you're fasting, you, you want to hear from the Lord. And so when something's not happening, there, you, you begin to think, there, maybe there's something I'm doing wrong. Or maybe God is not seeing what I'm doing. And so he responds in verse 5. The Lord's response is this. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed? And to spread sackcloth and ashes under him, which was a picture of humility, a picture of being destitute so that you would, God would show himself to you. That would be the sackcloth and the ashes. Will you call this a fast, the Lord says, and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? Listen. To loose the bonds of wickedness. To, un- to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Oh, the Lord. He took the idea of them fasting and turned it. If you look down there in the verse, he says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And what the Lord is essentially saying to them is, you chose not to eat bread. What would you do with the bread? You pushed away from food. What would you do with the food? And essentially what he's saying is, you want my eyes to notice your poverty and your brokenness, but you don't notice poverty and brokenness. You want my ears to be inclined to your hurts and your pains, but you don't hear hurts and pains. (laughs) And the Lord found that to be quite inconsistent. And so... The backdrop of this is very interesting if you look in the Proverbs, and we're going to look at another text here. But the Lord is clearly not encouraging them to do more religious practices in terms of fasting. He's saying you have to get active with what you believe. But you must understand the way the Lord sees the poor. And Two times in the Proverbs, Proverbs 14, 31, and Proverbs 19, 17. Look what he says. If you insult the poor, you insult the Lord. If you give to the poor, you give to the Lord. Why don't we know that verse? I was studying this week. I was like, how did I not learn this verse growing up? Look how he identifies himself with the poor. As if he were the big brother of the poor, as if the poor were his. 
Jesus, I believe, picks up on this idea in Matthew 25 of an astounding verse of the Bible. Profound. In Matthew 25, verse 41, it says, The Lord will say, and this is the judgment day. On the judgment day, the Lord will say, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So you can't get more compelling than eternity. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they, they will answer saying, Lord, you was, you was naked? When did we see you? I know I would have noticed you. You're the Lord. When did we see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick? When were you in prison? We missed that. And did not minister to you. We would have came if it was you. And then he will answer saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it for me. You did not do it for me. How do you know you are a Christian? How do you know you love God. How do you know God is in your life? What would be an indicator of that? Well, certainly we know that love is one of the greatest indications that God is in your life. This verse is not in any way getting at the idea that if you were to give more money to the poor, you would be saved. But what it's getting at is Justice is one of the grand symptoms or identifiers of authentic faith. It clarifies that you realize that you were broken and impoverished spiritually and you easily identify with brokenness and poverty. In fact, when you see the poor and the hurting and the naked, you really don't think there's much different from you to them. And so the imagery there, he, he says, is that God calls us to see the poor and the hurting in a unique way. And he will not put up with people that are unjust, but spiritually fervent. Look what he says in a different, different part of Isaiah, Isaiah 1, verse 15. This is a trip. When you, when you spread out our hands, when, we, when you spread our hand, your hands, spread out. I think that was supposed to be a T, I think. Yeah, so praise God. When you spread out your hands, look, 
I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I won't listen. Do you, under, do you okay, so we just worshiped, right? And some of y'all were feeling it. It was great, right? I was feeling it. Wasn't it awesome? You just lifted up your hands. And, the, and what are you doing? When we lift up our hands, it's this moment of surrender. Say, God, have all of me, all of me. God, I want you. I need you. Lift, speak to us now. Speak to us now. And we're doing all these things because we want God. And could you imagine the Lord turning his back from you to you? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Lord? You are giving all this fervent praise and the Lord is ignoring you. Could you imagine praying all night for something to happen in your life? And the Lord's not listening. It's a similar idea in, in you know, in, in, in Peter, it talks about how if a husband doesn't treat his wife in the proper way, his prayers won't be heard. It's not saying that you are being tossed aside and God doesn't love you. He just loves us and not just you. And when you don't love your brother or your sister, he has a hard time listening to you because you don't love them. Isaiah 1 and 17, learn, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. The widow in that time does not have anyone to speak for her, no husband, no one to care for her. So someone must take care of her. The fatherless, they are oppressed. They have no one to guide them. Those who are being oppressed, we want to correct those things. And you say to yourself, how do I do this? He says, learn. Do you want to learn? Learn. Learn to do good. Learn. And so I love the fact that it says learn because what he is saying is until you begin to be burdened, until you begin to have a desire to help people, until you go on the, the, the journey of justice, I won't be listening to you. Oh, I love you. I love you so much. I won't act, allow you to not act like me. Until you go on the journey of justice. Until you begin to want to discover broken people like you want to discover the Bible. Until you want to discover hurting people like you want to discover the next song. Until you want to discover hurting oppressed people, like you want to discover that new nugget and idea happening in the church world. Until you want that, I will shut down heaven for you. I will close up heaven because you are not open to people. And I can't believe I never heard this before. It is unjust that we don't preach this. So what is justice? What is the meaning of justice? 
I, I promise you, I would consider leaving this church just to go around the nation and, and preach this one sermon. I'm just talking. I'm not saying that's what I'm going to do. I'm just, I felt, there were some people like, amen. Some people like, What's, what, what happened just now? When we say the word justice, when we say the word justice in this country, we generally think of criminal justice. And we believe or presume that criminal justice is a mandate. We must have criminal justice. We must be about the rule of law. We must put people in their place. And that is why our country, I hopefully, if you have a chance, one of the great things, media has helped us in a lot of ways. Um, one of the great things that we do have now, I think Netflix has really done a great job in putting out this uh, movie called The 13th, if you get a chance to see it. If you, if you don't get a chance to see that, it would be great to uh, read a book by Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. Or if you don't do that, there's another book by a guy named Brian Steven, uh, by a, a guy named Brian Stevenson has a book called Just Mercy, which is another fantastic book, all dealing with the issue of prisons in our country. And the fact that we make up 5% of the world's population, yet we make up 25% of the prisoners in the world. America. 25% of the prisoners in the world are in our country. And you know what? You want to know why that is? Because we believe criminal justice is a mandate. We believe criminal justice is a mandate and social justice is a hobby. Oh, you did world, you did world vision. That's cute. Oh, you went across. Do you, oh, you got, let me see the pictures. Let me see the pictures with the African kids. But you did some good stuff. And we give it pretty much a pat on the back. A good job. And so because social justice is couched in the idea of volunteerism or hobbyism, which is a made-up word, praise God, then we aren't able to... It is just amazing that we call ourselves a Christian nation yet criminalize people so easily. Part of our challenge in understanding justice and seeing justice as a social revolution from the scriptures is because I don't think we have a deeper understanding of some of the elements that the Lord brings out <clears throat> in the fullness of the scriptures. In Isaiah 58, 7, I wonder if we have that. Isaiah 58 and 7. Do we have that up on the screen? Notice it says, <clears throat> is it not, when he's talking about that fast, right? Is it not share your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into your house, he says. All right? Seek, go, seek the naked, cover them. And then he says something very powerful. And not hide yourself from your own flesh. Now, when he says your own flesh there, other versions would say your own flesh and blood. This is a very simple interpretation. You know when he says your own flesh or your own flesh and blood? It means what we think it means. Family. And it presumes that the person who is homeless, hungry, naked, is your responsibility. Just like if you saw your brother or your sister 
or someone within the same political group or ethnicity or tribe, and you would say, I am responsible for you, your own flesh. And because we live in an individualistic society in the West, we rail against any kind of corporate kind of element. We put it, we couch it under the idea of socialism potentially, or, or we, talk about, um, we talk about personal responsibility quite often. But we have a hard time seeing the corporate, that there are corporate sins and there ought to be corporate righteousness as well. Part of <clears throat> this comes from one of the biblical pictures of what is called shalom. Now in the Bible, shalom is not just peace as you would be seeing it rendered, but shalom is something much grander than just having personal peace. When I lived in Raleigh, um, North Carolina, I, I didn't hang out in my office all the time. I would go to Panera Bread and uh, praise God for Panera Bread. Um, and when I would go to Panera Bread, um, there would be these women that would come and um, they would be making uh, fabrics. And so they would have threads and all these different threads that they would have there and they would be building it kind of like um, knitting, I guess you could say they were doing. And it was, it was kind of powerful. I would be sitting there like, man, this is it's pretty interesting. Um, and uh, you, you think about how a thread or even yarn or whatever gets, gets woven together and how it, it's one thing to have one piece of yarn or one thread here or here or here, but it's different when they're woven together up, over, in, and they're putting it together and all of a sudden they make a fabric. And that fabric now holds together all those different elements together. And the way that the Bible talks about shalom Shalom is the opposite of something falling apart, coming apart. And then shalom would be having it together, woven together. And so what it puts in our minds is this imagery of interdependence. Interdependence woven together to make a fabric. In the same way, we aren't independent of one another, but interdependent as a church, but Society is intended to be interdependent on one another, woven together. God has not intended people to live alone individually. He has not intended groups to operate isolated. But he has intended the world to work together corporately. And the church is intended, if no one else is living out that kind of fabricing of society. The church should be attempting to weave together the parts to the best of its ability. And so shalom can be understood in, in different ways, not just as a fabric, but if you think about your body. When your body is working together, it's what we call health. When your body begins to fall apart, it's when you begin to deteriorate. It's when you get sick. If you think of shalom from a psychological perspective, when you have shalom and things are working together, you have peace. But when something works against your conscience, you have guilt or you have fear. 
You think about your time. When it's shalom, things are working together as planned. When you have things falling apart, you feel all over the place. But when it comes to money, when the shalom is happening in society, money is invested not just individually to yourself, but money is also invested into the broken areas of society. And that's not socialism. I don't even, there's no ism to that. That's Jesus. The social fabricing of society is intended to be woven together and the church is intended to be one of the primary agents of that interwovenness. With time, money, our bodies, our energy. This is why God gives us certain gifts. Our gifts are not just intended to be used in the church. They're intended to be used in the world. And so God has given those gifts to put himself on display to be a part of the flourishing of a society so that you can have him being, he, he will be using you to put back together a world that is falling apart. So shalom, in essence, is the way things should be. Now, justice and shalom work hand in hand. That's what justice is, the way things should be. It's what we call right or righteousness. And so if shalom and justice is the way things should be, if you hoard your money and there is someone starving over there, that's not just being stingy, that's being unjust. That's not just selfishness. It's unrighteous. Isaiah 58 and 6. He says, is this not the fast I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Well, this is, this is where we get worried. We go, well, how involved should I get? If there is a hurting school out in Brownsville and I start to mentor and volunteer, how involved should I get? How involved should I get with the person who is hurting and homeless and naked and wandering? How involved should I get? Well, the Bible is not asking you just to measure your involvement. The Bible is calling on you to be focused on the effectiveness or the outward change that is happening. In other words, you may just be one part. But when we work together, we can do things like break the yoke. Think about, it's crazy. Um, there was a woman that lived in our apartment building and she worked in Brownsville. And it was very interesting. She said, she said um, I said, hey, how's things going? You know, I would talk, she was an art teacher. And she said, you know, it's really tough. She said, the, the toughest part of the parents. I said, yeah, I know it, it can be tough getting parents. She says, no, no, you don't understand. My best parent just got locked up yesterday. My best parent, the president of the PTA board got locked up yesterday. And she said she was my best. She said, and what's crazy is she was dating a guy who was the janitor at the school. And that was, you know, one of her kids goes to the school. And she said, she said now the janitor has lost his job at the school and the wife is locked up because they got into a fight. 
And so the kid now has a dad who doesn't have a job and a mom who's locked up. Meanwhile, in Park Slope, where I live, and no shade on Park Slope, I live there. The PTA is lit. I mean, it is, it is on fire. Fundraising. I mean, you, we, we, we don't do anything without a fundraiser. We, we're handing out candy, $10, please. It's crazy, crazy everything we're doing. And they, they, they get grants. They get programs. My kids have the best. And one of the things that we said we wanted to do was we, we were talking to a family the other day, and we said, hey, we want to move into Flatbush and we're going to want our kids to go to school there. And my wife was talking to a woman. She was like, no, 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 you don't want your kids to go to school there. You want to keep them in Park Slope. He's like, no, we want to kind of live out our lives there, kind of bless the community. And what we're talking about is living out that shalom, that fabricing. She was like, that's crazy. <laughs> you keep your kids in Park Slope. Right? Because it's all about me and my kids and my kids doing well. And I don't weave myself into broken places. I weave myself into wholeness. I weave myself into protection and convenience. We don't weave ourselves into danger. But you understand the yoke does not get broken unless there are healthy people moving in. Unless there are healthy people sharing themselves sharing their wealth, sharing their life. The yoke does not get broken. Amen. And so this is what, this is the essence of what he's saying is break the yoke. Do you understand? He's not saying get involved in the school. He's saying change the school. He's not saying get involved with people. He's saying hope to change their lives. And you, we can't do it in our power, of course, but he's saying what are we ultimately trying to do? We're trying to see structures change. My, my cousin his name is Mark, and when I was uh, 10 years old, uh, my dad, who grew up in Mississippi, um, allowed my cousin to live with us, and, um, you know, I was, a, I was a kid. I didn't have a big brother, and he was about three years older than me, so he was like my big brother, and I loved hanging out with Mark, and, and I was raised in the suburbs, and so I didn't see a lot of, like, crazy stuff, and he was not... He was raised down south, and a lot of stuff he saw, and so I can remember us talking one night, and we had, um, remember those bug zappers where you take bugs? Anybody remember a bug zapper? Okay. I just needed an amen or something. I needed some affirmation. Um, but we used to take, we used to capture bugs and just, like, like, like torture them. But anyway, but that's what we did, and we would, like, zap them, in the, and would make this incredible smell. And I remember he goes, I'll never forget, I was 10 years old, and he goes, mm, that smell like weed. And I was like, yeah. I don't know what weed smells like. <laughs> and he would tell me stories of things in his life I had no clue of. And he was with us for two years. And we saw his literacy rate increase. We saw his social abilities increase. We saw him begin to have a life so much stronger than what he was having before. But I remember the night my Aunt Ruth called us. She was drunk. Mark was one of the most responsible of her boys. And she says, I want Mark back home now. And Mark, being a good son, was like, I guess I need to move back down to Mississippi with my mom. My dad said, son, if you go back down, don't get in trouble. Don't get in trouble. 
Don't make mistakes, son. And you know, he was raised in the South. He says, yes, sir, I won't. Well, four years later, we, we go back down south, and we're driving down. We used to drive down in this van, and, and I remember I was so excited to see my cousin Mark, and we're driving down in the van, and we pull up, and in the south, they had, they had like these seashells on the ground, and so uh, the seashells were like, they didn't have pavement on driveways, so they had seashells, so you'd always hear this popping sound, and I, I, so I'd be asleep, and I'd remember the popping sound, like, oh, we're, 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 we're there, we're there, we're in the driveway, and I remember waking up, and I was like, I can't wait to see Mark. Can't wait to see my big cousin. Can't wait to see him. And Mark, I heard the popping sound again, and it was him pulling up. And Mark was in this, I mean, beautiful car. Rims, real nice. <clears throat> and I go to get out the car. And I was like, I'm going to go see Mark. And my dad grabbed me. <clears throat> my dad said, don't you get in that car. I said, it's Mark, Dad, it's Mark. I want to go see him. He says, don't get in the car with him because that's not the Mark you knew. My cousin, Mark, who would end up going to high school down there, got involved in the drug game, ended up shooting a man 17 times, went to jail, spent 20 years of his life in jail. Mark just got out. Mark's a cook now. Mark's still a good guy who made some bad mistakes. And he was woven into brokenness. And there was no one righteous weaving their lives into him. And the problem of our politics is one side says it's Mark's fault. One side says, you know, one side says it's the family breakdown. Mark and his whole family, it's just got, got to get that better. And another side says there's social structures and, and all these things that, that, that come together. But no one says when Mark was 11 years old that it was his fault. When he was a young boy, he was just following the people that were surrounding him. what if we were to be leaders in this world? That we would look for the marks. The people that are longing to be led. Who want their lives to be woven into. What if we were people looking for them? What if we wanted to learn justice? What if we were that? Then we wouldn't have to just sing songs saying we want to change the world. Believe this, the world wants to be changed. There is a mark. And it might not just be financial poverty. There are broken, hurting people in this world, in your neighborhood, in your apartment. Do you look for them? Do you long to be around them because you're whole? Well, lastly, let me say this. Why is God so concerned for the poor? Why does he have this incredible concern for the poor? Jesus, everything about him was intentional. And we don't 
we quite possibly don't look at the means by which Jesus came to earth with enough great detail. When Jesus was born, he was born in a manger. We know this, right? But we know that a manger was essentially a a stall. It was a place for animals. And where Jesus was placed was in a feeding trough. Oh, think of the bowl that a dog eats out of. Jesus was born in a place for animals. The Son of God, the King of glory, placed himself not just below princes and kings, but he placed himself below humans. He was born in a feeding trough. He was raised by a young Nazarite girl. You couldn't get more impoverished than Nazareth. And then you could have... He could have come from the sky, but he was born, and he was born to a young little 14-year-old girl, and women, young girls, were the most discounted of society, and yet he called her mother and put himself under her leadership. We look at the fact that when Jesus went to the temple with his parents, they had two pigeons, meaning they, they placed two pigeons there um, to give. And that, that was a sign of being a peasant, of being poor. He was completely raised in poverty. And then when you think about Jesus, Jesus, when he says, foxes have holes and birds of the airs have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. The son of man. The king of glory doesn't have a home to live in. And that Jesus was homeless. Uh, author Jim Boyce, he has a, a book called The Illegalities of Christ's Trial. When you look at the way he grew up, the way he allowed himself to be treated by Pharisees and by people, but then when you just look at his trial and and Rich eloquently laid this out for us when we talked about suffering before. When you look at the way that Jesus was arrested in the night, illegally arrested, there was no publicity to his trial. They kept it private. He had no defense. They gave him no lawyer. They did the trial at night on purpose. And in the middle of the trial, they hit him in the face. And Jesus was illegally incarcerated. And it was to a corrupt system. The young lady was reading about this one time who had grown up in the Jim Crow South and she realized that in reading of the injustices that happened to Jesus, she realized Jesus did not merely suffer for us. He suffered with us. And she said Jesus was as good as lynched to a corrupt system like the people I know. Why did Jesus do it? Why did he do it? 
Why did he give up glory? Why did he give up a throne to be impoverished and to be nailed to a cross? He gave up everything for our poverty, for our spiritual poverty. He gave us his richness. He gave us everything. And so when you come to Christ, you come spiritually poor. You come broken, don't you? Isn't that why you pray? Isn't prayer like this unlimited bank of requests that you always try to make withdrawals from? Isn't that why you up all night talking to the Lord? Because he has so much and you have so little? Isn't that why you talk to God? Because he has everything? And if you think about how he has everything and you are needy, that means you are impoverished. That means you are needy. That means you are a beggar. And the reason why God identifies with the poor, has special concern for the poor, is not so that you can see him, but so that you can see yourself. So that you can see you, because you are poor. You are destitute, you are broken. The only difference between them and you is a bank account. But money is not the full definition of who is poor. You are oppressed. You are being oppressed by this world. There are structural things happening to you. That's why so many single women feel like they're losing something by being single because there's a structural oppression making you think your worth and your value come from your body and, and that's why you think you have to get married because you need somebody. There's a structural oppression happening to you. Christ sets you free from that too. And, the, and so, the, so it's, it's, it, you know, I was reading this and I was just so perplexed. You know what I was perplexed by? When the Bible, when Jesus says, I was a prisoner and you did not visit me, you know what I thought about? Jesus never mentions what he did to get into prison. I just want you to come see me, be with me, come be with me. And, and, and the, the problem is we've defined justice as criminal who did right and who did wrong. But if the spiritual story were to be told, we are all criminals. That we have all committed something so egregious, so unjust, that we have sinned against the holy God. That we are unrighteous. And in the incarnation, Jesus was with us. He was with the worst, the poor, and the prisoner. He says, be with them. Be with them. And he now said, Christianity is one beggar 
telling another beggar, beggar where he found bread. I want to encourage you in this. Don't wait for the I Am Known campaign. Don't wait for our ministry do justice. Those are incredible ministries that we are putting together for you. But there are hurting, broken people waiting for you to weave yourself into their life and it will be a mess. In fact, I encourage you when we have our time of prayer, I want you to think about the person at work that everyone's moving away from. And I want you to begin to pray about making a beeline towards them. I want you to pray about the person that is hurting and broken. I want you to pray about the person that they, they talk too much and they, they waste your time and everybody's not wanting to be around them. The people that wear on you. And you have to spend yourself to be with them. And when you get tired, when you draw empty, just remember that Christ spent himself for you. Never let your motivation for social justice be merely seeing lives change because lives won't always change. Brokes won't always get yoked. Uh, yokes will not always get broken. But your yoke, the spiritual yoke on your life was broken by Christ. He broke the oppression in your life. You were forgiven much. And so because of that, it has now set you free to forgive and to love and to bless. And so the motivating factor is not their transformation. It is the fact that you were transformed, that you were changed and that the gospel is rich. It is rich. Don't wait on the government. Don't even wait on the church. Today, do justice. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. Lord, we love you. We love you because of what you've done in our lives. We love you because we, in your sight, are no less criminal than the worst. We love you because in the midst of political scandal, the greatest scandal that I can think of is when you saved me by grace. I am the worst. I am the chief of all sinners. Jesus, let Bridge Church be an active church. Let it be a church that is involved. And let us not be like the church in the book of Isaiah that sang great songs and prayed great prayers and read lofty great sermons and verses of the Bible and fasted daily. And yet, they missed their brokenness should have tip them off that brokenness is not just in them it's around them and like Isaiah when you see your own brokenness it should compel you once you are healed 
to go out and heal others. God, would you make this a church that heals the hurts of this world? Make us an active church. In Jesus' name. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. We'd love to hear how God used this sermon to speak to you. Please take a minute to email us your story. Our email address is info at bridgechurchnyc.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by using at bridgechurchnyc or visit our website, bridgechurchnyc.com. Thanks again for listening to this week's message.